0: Welcome to be with champions i'm your host, Greg Bennett. in the previous episodes, I had uh, none other than Mr. Phil Liggett doing my introductions and i can't thank him enough for that. What an honor just to have his voice be a part of this show alongside mine and uh, what a generous guy you know I reached out to him and see if he wanted to be a part of the show with me and he was right on it and he was excited to be a part of it and and phil i can't thank you enough mate just to uh, be a part of this journey with me in this show. Um, so, thanks again. This episode today um, was a special one for me. You know, I interview the guy that probably influenced me almost the most in the 80s and early 90s of the athlete that I wanted to be. You know, so this man, Mark Allen, uh, those of you who don't know him, uh, is just an incredible athlete, six times Kona Ironman winner and world champion in the short distance, and just had a winning streak that never seemed to end. And just somebody that i wanted to be like and in this episode you know we chat as mates and we get some really great stories from him um and it was a really it was amazing for me to just listen to his mind and how it worked both when he was an athlete and even now and he tells the stories of what he learned from sport when he was racing you know for those 15 years he had as a professional athlete and uh just a really great conversation with a remarkable man so Enjoy the show. If you've got any, um, you know, feedback you want to give me on this show, people you'd like to hear from, um, you've got any sort of, Greg, you know, shut up, you talk too much, or whatever it is. I'm happy to hear from you. I'd love any reviews. I'd love you guys to kind of share this, um, this show, and, and let's see if we can really get it out there. I've got uh, numerous athletes lined up for the year, and we've got different seasons at the moment. We're in season one, which is you know really the endurance athlete focus, but I have many other sort of athletes lined up. But anyway, enjoy this show, guys, and uh, thanks for listening. All right, today's guest isn't just a champion athlete. He's a lot more than that. He's a pioneer, an icon of the global sport of triathlon. He's one of the reasons that the sport of triathlon became the household sport it is today. His incredible battles and his domination are of legendary status. He inspired a generation of kids to want to be triathletes, and I was one of them. He was voted the greatest endurance athlete of all time in a worldwide poll conducted by ESPN. And over the course of his 15 years of racing, he won 66 of the 96 races he competed in and was named triathlete of the year six times. And in 1997, Outside Magazine called him the world's fittest man. He won Kona Ironman World Championships an incredible six times, the Nice Triathlon 10 times, and the inaugural ITU Olympic Distance World Championships in 1989. And he's still the only American to have ever won the ITU World Championships to this day, I'm a huge fan of this man and what he did for the sport of triathlon, and I'm honoured to have him on the show. Welcome and thank you for joining me on Be With Champions, Mr. Mark Allen.
1: Wow, what an what an intro! I, I don't know
0: if I can live up to all that stuff. <laughs> no. it's, it, it's, I'm loving my I'm loving my intros. <laughs> uh, no, well, you know, it's, you it, know what it, it's it's just what it is, mate. I, I uh, it's uh, I um you know, there's very few people I'm having on this show that, you know, throughout my career, I was asked, did you ever have any heroes or did you ever have? And I always said, no, I didn't have heroes. But, you know, I guess I had a poster of Mark Allen up on my wall as a kid. So if that's a hero, I mean, you're probably the closest thing to it. So I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit like a kid in a candy store right now getting to chat with you on this show. So I really, you know, I do mean everything I said above.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on. You know, it's, it's interesting because, um, people ask me, well, like, how did you win six Ironmans? How did you win these 10 times? How did you, you know, all this stuff. And it's like, you know, it wasn't part of uh, some big master plan. It was just something that unfolded one year at a time. And, mm-hmm. you know, each year, each year that I raced, uh, there was always that, that critical point at some time early in the beginning of the year where I had to ask myself, why am I racing? You know, what, what's my purpose behind this? Is it and in the beginning, it was actually very easy. I, w- I wanted to win races. I wanted to to try to win Kona, which, as you know, took me many years to get right and finally do it. Um, but then there was there there was a point in my career where it wasn't so easy to to answer that question because you know, great, you win a race, but your life doesn't necessarily change um mm. you know just because you win something as amazing as IT World Championship or or Nice or Kona uh unless you reflect on it and think about it and ask yourself what 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 happened out there you know what what can i learn what nugget mm. was in that event for me that i can use later in my life it doesn't really change anything about your life it's 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 a great um you know, it's a great thing to have on the resume for sure, you know, and it's Mm -hmm. not to take away from the pure, just simple satisfaction of of winning something or having an amazing race. But ultimately it's like, you know, to be, being at the top of the world in in any sport is a very limited period of your life. And so it's like, okay, what will I be able to bring with me? through this experience into the rest of my life to enrich my life, to enrich the life of others through the experiences that I've had. And uh, so, it you know, really became kind of a, a learning ground for life, a template for how to approach things challenging, how to overcome that lesser part of yourself that can be lazy or can be negative when you need a positive mindset and and all those things. And so, it was, Mm. you know, it was, for me, racing was just a, a really rich life experience, much more than just it being sport and competition.
0: Gosh, it sounds like I'm I'm actually listening to Laura right now. So, Laura, my wife, is you know, and, and it, it actually voice is one isn't of the spe- as
1: deep as mine. I No, you. no,
0: but but she would always say, you know, we're using the sport of triathlon to experience life, and and you know, even in one of the talks that I give, um, you know, it's learning life's lessons through sport, and and that you've you've really touched on the essence of what this kind of podcast is about, and that is what makes a champion, what makes a champ? you know, what makes a champion stay on top? You know, how do they get there and how do they stay there? But what are the tools and tactics and, and things that we can all use, whether we're athletes or not, to get more out of life? Hmm. You know, and I think sport is a brutal way to learn some of life's really tough lessons. And it's very rewarding to learn some of life's really great lessons. You know, it's, it really has that that extreme differences. and And, and it's such a it's a safe area to really experience um, the wisdom that you get to learn about yourself. You know, it's like a, I know that you've been very worked very much on the mind over the years. And I've always loved that about the way you approach the sport, but I think in sport, it really does challenge you emotionally and spiritually at a very deep level that I think it's almost hard to replicate in any other way in life.
1: Well, sport is very cut and dry, you know, so you, you, Uh, in, in in basic terms, it's cut and dry. You're either performing better than you did, or you're not performing as good as you have, or as good as you know that you can. Um, and, 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 you know, part of that good performance is in in relation to the other athletes. I mean, you can have the most amazing race of your life and finish 10th. Right. Um, Mm. but it's, you, you sport you can't buy your way to anything amazing or great you have to mm-hmm. do it you know you can't mm-hmm. buy your way to the finish line you can't um you can't coerce someone else into doing the training for you you have to do all of that and and one of the one of the greatest lessons that i think i learned from athletics and sports is that there are there are very few moments uh, that are going to be publicly acknowledged as amazing in your journey through sport, but through all of the days of training that you do, there there can be thousands of amazing moments that only you will know about, you know? Mm. And, and so, training is is actually, I think that's the real richness of, of athletics and sports. You know, you, you, Mm. you want to win Ironman. Okay. Well, you start training in January and, you know, (laughs) every single day, that's kind of part of your focus. And each day you just go out there and, and you do these very simple, often inglorious, sometimes painful, things called training sessions and workouts and you know you do the same runs over and over and over and over and over it's same swims you know back and forth in that pool looking at that same Mm -hmm. line that's going to be the same until the end of Mm -hmm. time and you know the same same with cycling Uh, but as you do that you know each day there's a little there's a little shift inside of you on on your proficiency on your efficiency on your ability to to move with more flow and, and and grace and and power that has nothing to do with trying. And, you know, as that develops over the year, you go from being completely out of shape in January to being in this incredible <laughs> peak of fitness at the end of the season. And, you know, so anyway, the, the lesson in that for me, and it's something that I really have to often remind myself in in like in my coaching that I do nowadays and and speaking that I do, it's like you just have to do those simple things over and over and over and over and over Mm -hmm. without any expectation that anybody's going to come up behind you and give you a big pat on the back and say, great job, Greg, great job, Mark, (laughs) you know, you, you answered another coaching email today, but (laughs) you know, you do that stuff and there's an energy that builds not only inside of you, but in, in your relationship with other people and with life itself, like like Laura mm-hmm. says. And it, it really becomes a practice for um, evolving who you are as a person. And it doesn't have to be sports. You know, it can be, business you know you're a writer you write things over and over and over you're a marketing person you put ideas together over and over and over and over you're doing a podcast you will interview people over and over and over but each time you do it there's going to be something a little bit different and a little Mm. nugget that just Mm. you know gets stored away in your in your sort of cosmic storybook of your life
0: yeah i mean that's really it i mean it's that that consistency word that everyone throws around but it's it's so true and do you recognise, you know, the impact, um, the the legacy that you you've left in the sport? I know, you know, this year gone, you know, was the thirtieth anniversary anniversary of that, you know, big eighty nine Iron War, the Ironman uh, event. Um, and for listeners that don't know triathlon, that really um, was a remarkable story that we'll go into in a bit later. But as a whole, um, do you understand? you know there was the big four triathletes in the 80s there was yourself mark allen i mean dave scott um, scott tinley and uh scott molina right yeah, i mean yeah you, you guys were the big four but but really in my mind to some degree you and dave even took it to another level mm. and and i don't want to age you by what i'm about to say but i look at you and dave scott somewhat as the godfathers of our sport mm-hmm. and and when you look at the sport now and, and you look at it in the Olympics and you look at the worldwide coverage it's getting and and the mass numbers that are participating in the sport, and do you understand the impact that, you know, yourself and probably Dave are the two that I put right at the very top echelon of that, that are what drew us into the sport? Do you do you sense that? Do you feel that you've actually done that?
1: I you know, I don't really I don't think about it in those terms, I guess, you know, because I, I mean, I'm, I should say I'm amazed when people come up to me and say really kind things like, you know, my, I got into the sport by watching what you did and, and my life was a wreck and I pulled it together and transformed everything about my health and the way I approach things. And I just wanted to thank you, you know, those kind of kinds of mm. of, of, you know, words from people that I, that I meet at races or just around, you know, it's it's pretty, it's, it's humbling. And I feel grateful that I was at the sport in the sport at a time when you could have a pretty big impact, you know, through your efforts. Um, you know, Dave and I were and Scott Molina and and Scott Tinley, one of us, if we were all in the race, probably one of us, one of us was going to win it during Mm -hmm. a certain period. And then, you know, obviously other guys came along and that, that stranglehold was loosened, but yeah, it's. I'm just. I'm just grateful that I h- had that opportunity to to be near the top or at the top for many years. Uh, mm. You know, I raced 15, 15 years, uh, which is a lot of guys are racing much longer than that now.
0: I was uh, going to say that's not actually very long, and it always feels like you you did a lot. I raced for twenty seven years as a, as an actual, uh, and most of those years were professional. But I always think of you as being around forever like i i you know it's one of those i actually went before this show i read and it said 15 years i'm like that doesn't seem right well and then i'm like well you piled a lot you put a lot in in 15 years we did
1: and, and the thing is we've been talking about it ever since so we haven't know, that's you know true. we haven't let it die out you know this this was yeah. the, the 30th anniversary of of that epic yeah, battle yeah. that dave scott and i had and and so we yeah You know, we did a. a, There was a lot of buzz around that, and so we've we've talked and told these stories for for many years. Mm -hmm. And and the interesting thing for me is that, um, you know, you if when you have a lousy race, you, you mull it over and you think about it, and you go, "What went wrong? And what can I do better the next time? And how can I not just?" Why wasn't I able to pull it together and do what I felt like I was capable of doing? You, you, you know, you go through that whole analysis. I mean, maybe in the beginning, after a terrible big event, you're just kind of pissed and depressed and you don't want to think about mm. it. But you you mull it over, you think about it, you come up with strategies. The races where you perform really well, that's not as as much of a given. Mm-hmm. You know, people mm-hmm. just sort of bask in the glory of it and, they, and then they go on and they hope that the next time they have a big race, it'll be the same Experience And obviously it's not like we saw with Jan Frodeno, you know, he won a couple Ironmans and he has two really terrible, terrible years. And then he comes back finally again this year and wins it again. But mm-hmm. um, it's taken me, literally it's taken me 30 years to really feel like I understand many of the elements of what went into uh, that race in 1989 against Dave Scott. It was complex mm-hmm. and there were, there were many decisions that had to be made earlier in the year with training. Am I going to go back to Kona? Is it worth it? I've gone there six times. I haven't won. Why am I going to bash my head <laughs> against the wall one more time? You know, things like that. There were a lot of, a lot of, a lot of elements that went into it that I'm just finally 30 years later understanding. And so, even though we've, were we are recounting something that happened 38 years ago and something that both Dave and I have talked about for many years, it was a new experience for both of us because we really, we went deep inside and said, okay, what what went on? And people who are interested, uh, m- my business partner, Scott Zagarino, who has been around the sport forever, um, he came up with the idea that, that to have Dave and I write, a bunch of stories about what went in, into the year leading up to that epic race because he said i know you and i know dave and i know that there were a lot of things that went on behind the scenes that that were challenging that were difficult that nobody knows about except for maybe your close family and friends and he said hmm. it's time for you guys to to tell the real story of that race because everybody knows you know the last hill be- you know, after eight hours of racing, I pulled away and I, I won and Dave got second. Well, you know, there's a little more to the story than that, right? And so mm-hmm. we put together ten, uh, 10 episodes, if you will, of talking about the year leading up to that race. And there were things that Dave wrote that I had absolutely no idea about things that he was struggling with personally, you know, just almost Mm -hmm. like, you know, being, being depressed and dealing with having a newborn son that year and just Mm -hmm. so many things. It's like, even I, you know, the guy who raced this guy, the icon, Dave Scott, I thought I knew everything that went into his race. I had no idea the things that he had Mm -hmm. to to manage and and deal with. And, And so it was, it was really incredible. And we, um, scott zagarino published these stories you can you can there's a link you can go to 1989 the and you can read those and it's i don't think i have ever seen anything anywhere where two rivals have collaborated and opened up and told what was going on on a human level with them as they entered into one of the greatest battles of their careers and so mm-hmm. it's it really goes back to, you know, the theme of your podcast of, you know, talking about sport from a very different angle. It's, it's not about what our splits were on the track. It's not about mm-hmm. how many miles we rode and, you know, all that kind of stuff. I mean, there's a little bit of that in there, but it's the human side. And, and then that just brings it all back full circle. You know, sport is about you as a person. It's about your inner character. How do you, how do you manage yourself? when things are not going ideally how do you manage yourself when your race doesn't look like your pre-race visualization you know how do you mm-hmm. <laughs> how do you deal with disappointment when you don't have a good day when com- things completely fall apart how do you pick up the pieces and that's that's kind of what People will, will see in those stories and hopefully relate to in their own terms, in their own world, in their own challenges. And so to go way back to your question, do I am I aware of the impact that I've had? I, I don't think I am, but I, I see, um, you know, reflections of it, like I said, in, in things that people say or just comments that I hear about my career
0: well I know I know for my generation you know when when I talk with you know whether it be Chris McCormack or Simon Whitfield or Craig Alexander and we all grew up in Sydney and we were sneaking into pubs to watch you know the Sky Channel because Australia didn't have cable television back then and and we'd sneak in to watch the USTS series or we'd wait the four or five months for the the uh, Ironman World Championships to come out you know six months later and and for us, it was a tremendous impact what you and Dave and, and Scott and, and um, well, both Scots did. And, and I think that whole era just, you know, I think it impacted not only us as athletes, I think it impacted people like race directors that wanted to put on bigger and better races. I think it impacted age groupers around the world. I think it impacted the Olympic movement. Mm. I think there was so much that came out of you guys that you don't, um, and I think it's important that you understand it, that- you know, as somebody that I went on to have, like I said, 27 years of racing, the impact that you created that created these pathways for me, you know, and the mm-hmm. opportunities that came about from what you guys really started, um, was really, really quite something. So, okay, we can go to 1989 thestory.com to see some of those. Um you you mentioned uh, you know, the everything that we go through to get ready for these big events and um you know i had a little story on that and and i like to talk about it you've got to be ready physically you've got to be ready mentally in terms of your visualizing and affirmations and all that kind of thing but you also have to be ready emotionally and that's almost i've i've raced guys where their wives have just had babies and they're on a a real high Mm -hmm. and they, they they almost race beyond themselves um and i've raced i remember the 1999 world champs i think it was or Ninety-eight, I can't remember, but I was going in as uh, one of the, I think world number one or two, but I was in a really poisonous relationship at the time. Mm. And, and I couldn't get out of my own way. It was like, I, I ended up finished 15th and it was in Montreal or wherever it was. And I remember just going, you know, I think I was arguing, I'm not a person that argues or, or, you know, I'm, I'm quite placid when it comes to that kind mm-hmm, of thing. Mm-hmm. But in this relationship, it was kind of bringing out some of the worst in me. And, and, and that really flooded over into the way I performed on the race course. Mm. And, but it was a tremendous learning lesson, like you've described. It was a way for me to go, hang on, you know, I've got to find somebody that's going to be a relationship for me that's going to keep me on an even keel, help me with expectations, you know, because nobody's harder on yourself than yourself as an athlete, you know. I mean, you, you can have everybody's expectations around you, but your own expectations are often what you know create the self-doubt and you freeze yourself and it's kind of like you need people that are going to be behind you and are empowering and um i wasn't getting that in a relationship i had at that time mm. so for me for me that's really interesting that you know you guys were are willing to share what you went through for one i think uh you know to share that vulnerability um because it's it is vulnerable to to sort of open up and and, and share everything you went through but um Definitely, everybody should go read those. I've read quite a few of them myself already, and it's tremendous what Scott's put together. Um, but what I what I'd like to do, Mark, is I was wondering if we could just wind the clock way back, mm-hmm. um, and I really want to know when did you sort of first find your passion for endurance sport?
1: Um, it it was started started in 1982. I. You know, as a kid growing up, I swam competitively for 12 years. I was 100, 200 backstroke, 200 IM. So, anything over about two minutes was endurance in my brain at that point, right? And um, anyway, when I was 24, two years out of college, you know, two years away from what I thought would, was the peak of my physical fitness for my lifetime as a swimmer, <laughs> um, so I, I saw the Ironman on TV and I'm like, Oh my God, this is, this is friggin' nuts. These people are crazy. Why would you ever want to do that? You know, but as I was watching the show, you know, I went from thinking they're crazy to thinking these people are truly amazing. And mm. about two weeks later, uh, it was like this calling, you know, I could just feel the race, the island, everything about what I had seen on on Wide World of Sports was saying, "Come, do this race." And it had absolutely, there was no logic or reason behind why I wanted to do that. I mean, I'd never, I'd never run or biked before, you know, so that was going to mm-hmm. be completely foreign. I had never done a, uh, you know, I'd run one five, one ten k, I think, in my life, so. That was, my, that was my greatest <laughs> endurance accomplishment, <laughs> running a 10K. And then you know how it is when you do something like that you've never done before. I ran six miles. And so I thought, we. I deserve the biggest brunch breakfast ever. And I went and I gorged <laughs> myself on you know 10,000 calories at a hotel restaurant brunch. And I'm like, now it's a joke, right? Six miles, that's barely getting going. But anyway, so uh, I just thought, wow, you know. I need, I need to go there and just see if I can cross that amazing finish line. And that's mm-hmm. that was the inspiration, just to see if I could be a finisher. Certainly, I had no, you know, as a swimmer, I was never world class. I was never, I never even qualified for Olympic trials, forget going to the Olympics. So, I, I didn't think I had athletic, uh, the, the athletic toolbox I needed, the genetic toolbox to actually excel at, at any sport. I love sports and Mm. I think to back it up even more um, as I got into uh, triathlon, I I had this mindset as a swimmer that um, the great rewards that I was going to get were going to be very personal because like I said, you know, I w I wasn't winning swimming events. I was, you know, doing okay and I I did all right, but I was never great. I never got big accolades. So, but I, I had this, this way of just really gaining this fulfillment out of getting just a little bit faster in my realm on my level and that's what i brought mm. into triathlon just this this passion for just seeing if i can get a little faster than i was yesterday or last week or last month and um so anyway that was that was the first year 1982 and i did go there i was so nervous on the start line i thought what have i gotten myself <laughs> into you know and was
0: that was that on the big island it, that your first year because i remember it changed from oahu was that Oahu? Was it, it was, it was race on the, race on the big
1: island, island. They, they moved it in 1981 to the big island and
0: mm, that's right that's right
1: john howard won uh great cyclist from the u.s and then mm. um in 1982, they they had originally had it in February, and then finally they decided, okay, February is not a good month for most of the people who live in Washington or North Dakota or New York or whatever, <laughs> you know. And so they they moved it. They had a second running of the race that October of 1980 of uh, 1982, and that's that's the one that I competed in.
0: I think it's hilarious that you say you didn't think of yourself as much of an athlete, and and for anybody that doesn't know you, it's worth going and and just you know typing your name in on YouTube, and because I actually think biomechanically and the way you you looked across the board swimming, biking, and running, you were you, your your sense of feel and your biomechanics was was absolutely outstanding, and kind of set the bar, especially in the '80s for mm. for how to move with ease. And I don't know if you needed to work with that over time, but it always looked to me that you had a natural gait about you when you ran. You you felt comfortable in the bike. You always looked, even for bikes in the eighties, you you looked remarkably aerodynamic, you know. And and your swimming, obviously, from your background, was, was tremendous. Well, at what point did you say, okay, I, I like I like this sport, and actually, I've got a little bit of talent, a little, and, and this is sort of my strengths so That maybe you know I can align this and. You know, was there a, a moment that you were like, "Hey, I'm actually okay at this"?
1: Well, it actually happened in that very first Ironman. I I came out of the water in second place on the feet of the man, the myth. myth, the man,
2: legend,
1: <laughs> Dave Scott. And he had I was I somehow I ended up on his feet part way through the swim, and and at one point I, I, you know, as I was following him, I I looked up and I I. All I could see was him, and I thought, "Man, that the top guys are so far ahead; I can't even see them." You know? <laughs> I had no idea that we were first and second until I came out of the water <laughs> and saw number two next to my time on the clock. I'm like, "I'm in friggin' second place of the Ironman," you know. And I thought, "Well, maybe triathletes aren't that good as swimmers." I didn't know. I didn't know what to think, you know. And so mm-hmm. then Dave and I, uh, <clears throat> I stayed with him all the way through Javi, and we made the turn, and we were about about 5 minutes ahead of everybody else you know the chase group and we um finally the you know we went through the super heavy duty jet propelled tailwind section and and things it slowly it started to s- slow down and you know at one point i i thought I have to say something to Dave Scott, you know, because I never <laughs> talked to the guy. Right. And I go, hey, Dave, uh, when we're done with the bike, you want to go for a run? You know, I mean, oh my God. Right Here I'm in the middle of the Ironman talking to this guy. Right. And yeah. uh, anyway, he, he he goes, who are you? You know, and I yeah. I told him my name and he goes, oh, I, I think I've heard you. And he took off. He put his bike in a big ear and just started cranking. And I'm like, OK conversation with the champs over that didn't work (laughs) well and and so i i clicked my bike into a big gear and my derailleur snapped the thing that held the uh the wire in place that moved the derailleur Mm -hmm. and so my all of a sudden my chain was stuck in the biggest gear and i still had you know 50 miles to go and um i was out i had to drop out but you know i had been with dave scott for uh, you know Three and a half, four hours of racing, and I thought, mm-hmm. you know what? Maybe, just maybe, I have what it takes to be able to win this race. And then mm-hmm. shortly after that, I was a- actually invited to be take be a member of a triathlon team in San Diego, Team J David, that um, mm-hmm. supported uh some a lot of the pro athletes that were around that area and gave us a salary and all that and all so all of a sudden it's like somebody wants to pay me to train
2: (laughs) sign me (laughs) up
0: you know i have i love i love love that part in every interview i've done is often the first paycheck you know it's like that i remember i was working at sizzler as a waiter and i was working you know i was at university but i was working a couple of shifts a week and making about 150 200 bucks a week and and I remember doing this Australian duathlon cup and Chris McCormack was in it Simon Whitfield was in it it was 92 and 93 or whatever and I won and it was $1500 wow. cash mm-hmm. and I remember going wow that's like 10 weeks work at Sizzle. I really <laughs> I I really dig this sport you know that yeah so at that same time then for you it was kind of like you know, when you got that backing from, you know, Team Jay David and you'd realize you were passionate about the sport, you realized you had some talent. And then you kind of said, right, you really, is that when you pulled the trigger and said, right, I'm I'm going all in and, and that was it?
1: Yeah. You know, they, they paid me a thousand bucks a month, which was at that time, that was like, you know, a million dollars. And and so I was able to, um, I didn't have to work you know it was just enough that i could kind of squeak by on and and Mm. then actually right after that uh, nike picked me up and that became Mm. you know one of my main sponsors for my entire career and so all of a sudden you know as i realized that i am going to be doing this at least another year um i didn't have to work and i was able to train and i was in san diego and i had met scott tinley and scott molina we were they were also Uh, invited to be on team j david and so all of a sudden i started training with two of the the best guys in the world and Mm. you know we we had no idea what we were doing there were no coaches there was no template there was no google there were no spreadsheets there was nothing we just went out and just did crazy stuff and and when it worked and somebody was doing well. We go, okay. What is what's Molina Let's doing? Let's do that. Yeah, what's Molina <laughs> doing do that. now? Because he's kicking our butt, and so yeah, we'd yeah. do that. And then sometimes we'd try stuff, and we all raced pretty, pretty shitty. You know, like we were overtrained, and so it's like, okay, that was too much, and mm. and that's how we sort of evolved the the, the template and the theory of how how to best get ready for this one sport that had three disciplines, swimming, cycling, and running.
0: Mm. And it's You mentioned Nike picked you up and I'll never forget. Um, I was sent over to the U S in 90. When I say sent, I was part of the Australian young guns tour that came to the U S in 95 or 96. And, I wasn't that young at the time, actually. I was 23, 24 to think about it. But they sent, originally it was going to be a big team. It ended up being myself, uh, another young guy, Craig Walton, mm-hmm. who ended up going on to do some pretty good things, and, I, and an older guy by the name of Troy Fiddler. And I'll, I remember going to Nike Town in Chicago, hmm. and there was this life, well, life size, was 100 times size photo of you that covered the wall in this Nike Town. And there was your bike, you know, from the 89. Man. I think it was 89 it was a Huffy bike I don't know if that was the actual brand you were riding or if they painted Huffy on it but I remember just thinking wow this guy you know what Nike what you did and what you did with Nike went so far beyond what anybody was doing in our sport at the time that you know you you were plastered everywhere that must have felt almost surreal
1: well it was pretty cool that Nike town in, in Chicago their closing time was my world record time so they closed it 809 that's right Eight oh nine fourteen, and then they then they <laughs> close at 80908 or you know that i broke yeah. i broke the record three times and so i think the employees are probably pretty excited every yeah. time I broke they're
0: like would you break eight hours already yeah could you go <laughs> maybe
1: like six hours uh, this eight hour day is too much but yeah yep. that's awesome yeah that was so, a fun thing
0: you know when when you were going through this this phase you had team j david and you're I like to sort of ask the guests like about your relationships and and not just you, your partners and family, but the team of experts that you worked with and and were you able to build a team around yourself at that time, or did that come gradually or were you a bit of a loner
1: oh i you know anybody who thinks that I did that sport on my own is is completely wrong i I had such an incredible team of people who helped me out in it and it it built one person at a time over the years, because, you know, as I, the better I did, the more people wanted to help me out, you know, which is sort Mm -hmm. of ironic. Like you need the most help in the beginning because you have no idea what you're doing, but Mm -hmm. (laughs) nobody wants to help you out when, when they want to help the person out who looks like they can make that helper look good just as well. Right. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) You know, so the first, the first sort of key player in my sort of arsenal of folks uh, was was Phil Maffetone, who had had mm. been doing a lot of uh, research on heart rate training, and he really helped me to understand the the value of training by heart rate, and that became sort of my gold standard of how I regulated my intensity in my training, so that I did enough base stuff, so that I had that aerobic fat burning. Endurance engine, and then obviously enough speed stuff, so that I also had the speed that I need to go to go really fast and, and to generate power and all that kind of stuff. So he was he was really the, the the key element in terms of that aspect of it. And then you know I had a a close friend who did massage, who was sort of my he and I were were super close. We were like brothers for years, you know. And he was kind of my sounding board when i was frustrated with a race or triathlon or people in general you know you need those you need somebody mm-hmm. that you can just vent with and, and mm-hmm. that they can just be there for you and he his name was mike rubano he was one of those people and then in 1989 i i you know the the third person that was really absolutely critical to sort of Making the second half of my career what it was and what it what it evolved into when I did put together all those wins was Brant Secunda, who um, I, I met. He's he's a uh, a shaman and a, a healer in the Wichel tradition from Mexico. The Wichel people live in Central Mexico. They have a very rich spiritual t- tradition, and there's so many aspects of how they approach life that. Were exactly what I needed to learn to be able to be a great athlete. Like, for example, you know, uh, a lot of the practices that Brant teaches in his workshops, uh, and that he helped me to develop, was the ability to quiet your mind. You know, it's they, you know, the we mm-hmm. just say when you when you quiet your mind, when when you stop that internal chatter, then you can hear the answers to the big questions in life. You can hear the answers that you could never think of logically to the, to the the problems and the challenges that you're facing. And when you're quiet, then you don't, doesn't matter if you're feeling good or feeling lousy, you, you take that next step anyway, you know, you stop sabotaging yourself. And so he helped me to do that. He helped me to, um, really, uh, be willing to, to surrender to, um, how life is unfolding instead of trying to, you know, sort of be the pilot, you know, guiding the bus the whole way through because he said, you know, you can never, you can never anticipate every twist and and curve that's going to come along. And so, when those challenges come, it's going to be your choice to to decide how you relate to those challenges. He said, nothing is, Mm -hmm. nothing is inherently good or bad. It's just how you interpret it. And so he mm-hmm. said, you know, as best as you can, and, and he has practices to help you do this, you know, you you let go of negative emotions like fear, anger, jealousy. He said those are those are three of the, the biggest ones that, that affect human beings and, and weaken them actually. You know, when you have fear, mm. you're weak. When you are angry it you might feel pumped up, but ultimately you're gonna end up weaker. And if you're jealous, it's gonna weaken you. And and so you you let go of those, and then you adopt more positive qualities like love and trust and uh, even even hope. You know, I mean, love. I mean, this, take this as your and it's. I think it probably fits in with your example of how you were in a toxic relationship. Mm. You know, when you can't measure love right it doesn't show up on your garment it doesn't show up on your heart rate monitor but it's it's a tangible emotion that affects who you are and how your actions in life unfold and and it also affects the amount of energy you have to put into things when you feel in love with another human being that relationship is strengthened when you feel in love with yourself and your sport you're you are filled up with energy that fuels your training, that fuels your racing, that fuels your ability to to just keep going, even in the face of those twists and turns and challenges that we all get. Mm. And so he really helped me with that. And then also, you know, one of the one of the great things that the Wechel Wechel people do is they they really try to develop their relationship with nature. And as an athlete, that's why i trained i loved being out there on trails i loved being riding in in the mountains you know west of of boulder in the summer i loved riding along the ocean in san diego in the winter where i trained and you know it's just inspiring to be connected with with nature like that because it you know human beings feel good when they're in nature if you're in a house mm. You can feel one way, and then you and you know you, you might be frustrated. Your day's not going right, and you just walk outside of your office or your, or your home, and you take in that sunlight, take in the fresh air. All of a sudden, there's a switch, and you just feel mm-hmm. better, right? And mm-hmm. and so you know that was super critical, uh, especially racing in Kona, because the the Big Island of Hawaii is a very very powerful place in nature that in the early years intimidated me. I was. I was afraid of the intensity of that island. I would get off the plane and just feel like, you know, Mike Tyson hit me in the gut. It's like, how am I possibly going to race in these conditions? There's no way. And I I tried to push it all away. And it's like, (laughs) the more you try and push away that energy of the big island, that the heat, the humidity, the wind, the more it's going to just become oppressive for
0: you. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Brant, showed me ways you you, you end up fueling that fear don't you i mean the more you push the more you're fueling the fear yeah Yeah, it's like adding (laughs) it's like adding kindling to the
1: fire and
0: yeah yeah, and so
1: brant really helped me to um connect with with the island embrace that energy and that power and and it was like a light switch you know from the Mm. moment i started studying with him you know then the next year i went back to kona and it's like wow, <laughs> this place mm. is a paradise. Yes, it's raw, it's rugged, but there's such beauty and such new innocence in this lava that still doesn't even have anything growing out of it, you know? And it it just enabled me to, to really feel at home there. And when I, you know, and that's one of the last pieces, I guess I'll mention it at this point, but he said it's important to feel at home no matter where you are on this planet. You know, the entire mm. planet is a it's a beautiful altar to live your life and and you should try to feel comfortable at home no matter where you are and and suddenly it's like the light switch went on i felt comfortable in hawaii knowing that i was going to have to race knowing that it was going to be intense but then just also being willing to just surrender and say hey let's just see what happens today i'm going to give it my best Mm. big island help me I know that you're going to throw a few things at me and I'll, I just hope that I can stay calm and centered and focused and just take that next step. Even maybe it might look like it completely impossible that I'm going to win or have a bit, a good race, but I'll just go with it. Just let me have a good day here. And it was like a complete shift. So yeah, I, you know, I, and I had my training partners, you know, to never under Estimate the impact of having good training partners. You know, I trained Mm. with Paul Huddle. I trained with Ken Souza. I trained with Scott Molina. I trained with Scott Tinley. And all of these, all of those guys were my camaraderie. They were my support. I supported them. It didn't matter if. I was having a good day or a lousy day. If they were having a good day or a lousy day, we just trained together. There was never anything where one of us was trying to take something from the other or make a statement about how fit they were. And those, those training relationships are absolutely precious and essential to, you know, ultimately taking yourself to that next level also.
2: Like what you've heard so far? Then make sure you never miss a podcast by clicking the subscribe button now. This show is only made possible by you, the listener. And if you'd like to support Greg, please visit the Be With Champions Patreon page. Your support, very much appreciated. Now back to the show. And
0: I think you're surrounding yourself with the best. I mean, you you mentioned those names there. Well, that's basically the best for, you know, the 15 years you were racing, that those guys were the best. And when you're surrounding yourself with the best, you know, when I interviewed Simon Whitfield and he said look I traveled to Australia in the early 90s because that's where the best happened to be mm. and, you know then we became mates and and then he bec- you know won the gold medal in 2000 and we trained together for that and and I think that's just it when you surround yourself with the best but what I really love is is you know the this power of the mind and you know for a young man I guess you were 30 31 when you met Brant and mm-hmm. and the work that you did with him and how transformative that was for you from just being an athlete to being somebody that understands the emotional spiritual side of what you can do with with your mind and the power of the mind to have over the physical body and you know one of the things that intrigues me almost more than anything with sport any sport you know to get to the highest level is the ability of the greats to control the mind to quieten the mind Mm -hmm. as you put it Mm -hmm. to 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 find that even keel, to never go too high emotionally, never go too low emotionally, find that even place to live, and that's obviously what you you went and did, and and mastered that ability. I mean, mastery is a word where it says you you've, you don't have anything more to learn. So I don't mean it like that. I just mean that you 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 came a long way. Let's just mm-hmm. put it that way. And yeah. and I think. Um, I think the future of sport, I think we're, you know, we're almost getting to the point where the physical limitations, where we're really, you know, the margins are becoming so minimal. I mean, even if you look at your time in 89 to 30 years later, um, it's it's marginal differences physically that I still think the future steps, and this again is where you're going to probably be a pioneer, you know, people are going to be talking about later on in years to come is mastering the mind and and how do you get to the point of 10 miles into the marathon you know, with a couple of mile, a couple of minute lead, or you're a couple of minutes behind. And how do I trigger a word affirmation? Or how do I do something that affects me hormonally, which then affects me physically in a way that I can get going again, if I'm starting, you know, fall in a heap, or, or if I'm playing Wimbledon in tennis, and I'm in the fourth set, and, you know, I need to find new energy and new purpose. And that's where tennis players fascinate me in their ability Mm -hmm. to calm the mind in between points. You know, they have that moment, they have to calm the mind. And, I'm fascinated by doing it under fatigue and under duress. Did you find you were able to do that? Were you able to find triggers while you're out on the lava fields doing the marathon? Were you able to find a an a word affirmation or something that helped you just you know get back on track?
1: Um well, I'll answer it in a second, but um yeah, the I you know, the the point you bring up is that it's it's so important to be able to get into that flow state or that quiet space. Or that tapped in, uh, tapping yourself into the source of life, kind of feeling in the midst of very intense moments, and it's, mm-hmm. you know, y- you can start by practicing when it in a very very low stress environment. So maybe you're, maybe you're just in your living room and you you have a wood burning stove or a, a candle and you're just you're kind of just meditating on the on the light on the on the fire or whatever and you you can feel yourself get calm and calm is not mm-hmm. necessarily devoid of thought it's just you're not you're not um you're not directing sort of how your mind how how the thoughts are are coming and flowing and that's when you can get real insights into things you know you're you're kind of daydreaming you know and and so then that's that gives you that experience of sort of being calm and feeling at peace and then and then you move it into your training you know you you have a, a particularly challenging workout coming up or any, any workout really and when you, you know if you're sort of paying attention to what's going on in your brain you know when you start hearing that voice like i can't do it this is too much eight eight quarters i only want to do six my legs is you know whatever it is that's when you can just go Whew. okay quiet There you go. Okay. Mm -hmm. And you practice Mm -hmm. that so that you get better at going back into that sort of quiet, steady space when things are becoming intense. Mm -hmm. And then hopefully if you've done that enough, then when you're in a race, you will be able to keep bringing yourself back over and over and, and over and over into that quiet space. Because it's not like all of a sudden you lock in and you're quiet and it's like for the next seven hours you're like the zen, <laughs> zen dude out there meditating on the, the big island and no. you're winning iron man that doesn't happen yeah. you know the yeah. real world is going to keep pulling you back into that that sort of n- negative mindset space with chatter and you got to keep bringing yourself back to whew, okay and so you know that's kind of how i did it you know in in Brants retreats you know he he goes to places like Alaska and Crete and, and and Mount Shasta—these amazing places in nature—and so you have these experiences of very focused, like week-long or weekend events, where you can just intensely focus on having those experiences. And then when you get back in your life, your your day-to-day life, then you can practice doing it more and more in your day-to-day life. And then eventually, as an athlete, I was able to do it in the races. But you know, to, you you asked me, did I have? word triggers and the answer is i tried that and for me it didn't work and here's the Mm -hmm. reason why i i was great at coming up with um you know sentences or words that described how i wanted to feel in the middle of a race you know light strong smooth whatever it is you know Mm -hmm. i feel Mm -hmm. Light as a feather as I'm moving through this tailwind, this headwind, you know, or whatever it is, you know, you got some cool yeah, stuff, yeah. right and like they all sound good and you gotta memorize. And then I get out there in the race, and when it's like friggin' blowing me all over the road, and it's a head it's a headwind, <laughs> and I'm running out of calories, and I'm getting dehydrated, and I look down and there's salt all over my bike shorts, and my negative, sarcastic mind starts going, This sucks. I'm gonna get it off, up, done. <laughs> First of all. If I could remember those key words, which I rarely was able to, I never believed them. It's like, Mm -hmm. I feel smooth and strong. No, I don't. I feel like quitting, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And and so, you know, for me, it it became really clear that my power place within myself was when I was quiet. Because Mm. when I'm calm, all of a sudden, everything relaxes. And when you're when you're in that quiet space, things can come to you that solutions that you might not necessarily have been able to think of or come up with in any other way. And here's, here's a classic example of it. You know, in 1989, Dave Scott and I were, as you know, side by side for eight hours of racing and it became clear with about eight or 10 miles to go in the marathon that neither of us was going to be able to break the other one. In, in the outer reaches of the course because the terrain was not demanding enough to separate us with either big uphills or big downhills. I was stronger on the upgrades. Dave was stong- stronger on the dow- downgrades, but nothing was dramatic enough that was separating us. But we both knew that as you approach, come back into the town of Kona, there is one long uphill that's steeper than anything else that we'd been on. And then you go down Plonnie Hill on the other side, Plonnie Road, and it's very steep on the downhill. So that was going to be where both of us were going to make our move. At the bottom of the hill was an aid station uh, where, you know, the logic, the the strategy is you get one last sip of your sport drink because that late in the marathon, you're running on fumes and you need every little calorie that you can get in there. And so, you know, the logic is you grab one last glass, gulp it down and then and then you take off. Well, Dave got the inside track to the aid stations before me and so he reached to grab his last glass of of nutrition and I came in behind him and just as I went to reach out my hand to grab a glass of uh, whatever I was drinking, something just said go. And it was like I was shot out of a cannon. I pulled my hand back. I started sprinting, you know, as best as you can sprint at the end of an Ironman. <laughs> yeah.
0: you, you might have been breaking 60s, yeah. but whatever. It's, it's great. Yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> and,
1: and, I, you know, it, it opened up in the three or four seconds it took Dave to to reach, grab his glass and look back. I opened up a gap of, you know, two or three meters and it just started to grow. And all of a sudden, he completely locked up and tightened up because all he was now – facing something that he'd never had to before somebody pulling away from him in the closing moments of the the ironman which was that was his turf his territory he was the best in in the last two hours of the race and Mm -hmm. but the reason i'm telling that story is that at that point of the marathon i was quiet you know uh, my Mm -hmm. mind was completely quiet and because it was quiet i I just heard this thing that said go, which was completely counterintuitive to any strategy you could have thought of because it it was a huge risk to not take in calories in that last aid station. You know, I mm-hmm. I might run out of gas, but in the end, it was the perfect strategy. And so, you know, that, so that's that's how I kind of worked with it in the races and what I did leading up to it so that I was – prepared not only physically in my training but mentally emotionally spiritually to go over there and to to i'd practice bringing myself into that sort of right athletic competitive space that has nothing to do with being stronger than or faster than it's it's more about being quieter than mm. everyone
0: else it, it seems to me like you know when you when you look at that eighty nine Ironman race, and and sometimes I do feel for Dave, who's a good friend of mine as well, and and you know that's the race we all talk about, and he's like, well, hang on, I won six before that, <laughs> and I'm like, but you, you got to understand, it was just the the way the race turned out, and what was fascinating was it, you know, and just your your kind of history at that race like you said you'd been there and and hadn't won it for six years but it's not just that you hadn't won it you'd you'd had big leads you know in in 87 you even built that lead up to about four and a half minutes and 80 which uh, i think 84 you had like a 12 minute lead or something i remember that and and so you'd you'd been winning this race many times by substantial amounts, and eighty seven was a phenomenal race in itself, where you took off and opened up. I think you started the marathon together, didn't mm-hmm. you? And then you opened up like a five minute lead, and yeah. or four and a half minutes, I think. And then Dave came back, and he went on the other side of the media truck. You know, <laughs> I I love all of that. There's all the drama of it, right? I it, I don't think you could have done anything at that time. I think you were you were empty, but you know there was that race. And what was incredible is that Dave didn't race eighty eight. And you got two punctures. It was almost like you weren't meant to win without Dave being there. It's like if we look at the universe was speaking and saying, no, Mark, you're not going to win without him. Because I think had you won in 88, 89 wouldn't be what we're talking about even. I I think the fact that you guys had to have that head-to-head battle, race each other for eight hours, four minutes side by side, and then you, you, like you said, got shot out of a cannon, that – missing that year i don't know what you think i'm actually intrigued as to what you think but i've always thought if if you'd won in 88 rather than scott molina and mike pig i think was second if had you won there i don't know that 89 would have the same impact no
1: it would not have you know for two reasons one i would have been going into it as a defending champion without the experience of racing dave side by side Mm. And, and there was so much i learned about Pacing and just how to race that race because he was he was racing it uh, in in all the early years earlier years me and pretty much everybody else was, was just trying to survive it and and so had I won in 1988 coming in as the defending champion I would have had this huge pressure that I don't think I was ready to I don't think I was ready to manage it yet. And and then you know of course he would have been just completely on fire and fueled up even more so because <laughs> you know because he didn't race the previous year and I if I had won that would have been like a, st- a thorn in his side so and it was it was really cosmic because it was really like the passing of a crown you know it's mm, like
0: it okay mm.
1: I've I've won six. Now through this sort of ceremony that we're doing together called this called the Ironman race, it's now yours, and you earned it because of what we did together. And yeah, it would have eighty nine would have been nothing. We wouldn't be talking about it had I won in eighty eight. I don't think no, so.
0: No, I don't. I don't think as much. Maybe I mean we may still be talking about it, but I don't think the impact was there. And what I love about this whole history that we're talking about, like you said, the passing of the crown and is that then you went on to win 6 and i don't know if it was you were just done with the sport or if it was just like you know what matching dave is something that is is just i just love the fact that you know the two icons of our sport have six each and i just think that was a you know a nice way to cap off that whole passing of the crown over i think it really was fantastic and
1: yeah i didn't um, i didn't have a, a desire to one up him um no. you know i truly respect everything that he did in the sport and his six victories and, and there was nothing inside of me that was saying oh you need to get one more than him and then on another level when i came to the race in 1995 my final Ironman, man um my real reason for racing that year uh, i mean i wanted to win and i wanted to tie his record of six but the real reason i was going there is because i felt like this was going to be the best Ironman man in my career I, I knew that I had pulled every every little trick out of my bag of training things that I'd wanted to try, and that win, lose, or draw, that was going to be the best race that I was ever going to be able to put together. And so I I felt absolutely no <clears throat> no reason to go back after that, um, mm. and, and I knew it mm. going into the race. Um, and I you know I actually asked the Big Island. I said, "Hey, Big Island, help me to have one last great race here, and I won't will never ask." your help to do another, another Ironman.
0: And just so people understand this Ironman was really remarkable in the sense. It's still, I think the biggest comeback, um, was it Thomas Hill, who had almost 14 minutes, right? Lead off the bike. Uh, the German guy, lovely guy did go on to win it in, uh, 96, 97. Yeah. 97. Um, but yeah, you came back and I think you only passed him again with, you know, was it two or three miles (laughs) remaining? Um, yeah and that that was just an amazing comeback
1: you know in in my ideal mind, as I was <clears throat> heading out on the bike, I thought, you know what would be really cool is if I could win this thing and set a new world's record, you know, and <laughs> so we I'm riding along and we're I'm coming down that huge long uh Grade toward Waikalo as you come down from Scenic Point is this long, 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 long downgrade. And the headwinds were so strong already at that point that I was in a 3917 pad- pedaling downhill. And so I'm <laughs> thinking, okay, forget the record part. And, um, you know, like you said, I came off the bike 13 and a half minutes ahead of. of thomas he actually put another minute on me in the first few miles behind
0: behind Sorry, right ahead behind, behind,
1: behind. <laughs> <laughs> i was chasing i was the rabbit Yeah, yeah, yeah and, yeah. and uh you know i did catch him somewhere around mile 23 mile 23 and a half and you know i after it was all and and i went on one sixth and final uh title mm. and i was you know when i was done i was like Jeez, why did it have to be so hard? You know, that was it was <laughs> it was the hardest thing that I ever had to do as far as holding myself together because uh, when I came off the bike, I realized I had to make up thirty seconds a mile every single mile of the marathon if I was gonna but, catch him at the finish line. And there was absolutely no way I could wrap my my brain around that. And um It
0: It never looked hard, though, watching you race. It never, apart from when you walked (laughs) in the early 80s and that kind of thing. But i got to say, if anybody made the sport look easy, it was you. Mm. I just remember this fluid motion of just this constant, rate. I think Craig Alexander had a similar kind of facial expression to you, didn't give a lot away, and and, and a a nice running form like you. And I think it was, uh, if I put a gun to your head right now and said, right, what was your best performance of your career? And you had to pick one. And I'm not talking, it can be Ironman, it could be short course, it could be a, a random little aquathon or duathlon. It there was there one race where you were like, wow, I just absolutely, that was as close to perfection I'm going to get.
1: I would say 95 Ironman for sure. Mm-hmm. And, and what was perfect about it was not necessarily um, what I what I did in terms of the race time or anything like that, but Perfect in the sense that there were there were even though it looked like I was under control and, and just picking off the miles and picking up the time and making closing the gap and I had it all you know sewed up. There were there were a lot of moments where I was ready to just quit because it was so hard to keep going. And <clears throat> you know the the greatest victories are are the ones that nobody else is going to see, and and those are the mm-hmm. victories you have over yourself where you do find a reason to keep going. You do find a way Mm -hmm. to just regroup, get back in the flow and keep giving it everything you have with absolutely no guarantee that when you cross that finish line that the results going to be what you'd hoped. And Mm -hmm. because of that difficulty uh, and the amount of the number of times where I had to just pull myself back together, by far, that was, that was the most uh, incredible race of my career. And it's, it's actually the one that that I use to fuel me when I'm in my life now, when things seem completely impossible. It's like, okay, how did you do it in in, in 95? <laughs> well, do it right here now. Once again, you know, just keep going, just regroup, pull back enough so that you can regroup and then give it everything you have. There still will be no guarantee that this day or this month or this year is going to turn out the way you hope. But that's all you can do is just give it everything you have. And that's such a, that's such a valuable lesson for all of us, isn't it? You know, to mm. to give everything you have, even, and that's what life is asking. The greatest things in life are not the things that come easy. They're the things that we struggle to achieve and to accomplish and to fulfill and to put together. And it's that, it's not that you need to go out and seek struggle, you know, life, life's going to throw you enough struggle, you know, just being alive, but. It's like, how do you manage that? How do you, did you pull yourself together over and over and over? Yes, I did. And look, look what's come of it. And maybe it took longer than I'd hoped, but look what I was able to do. And, Mm. you know, so that's, that was the greatest race of my career, even though, you know, thank, I I thank Scott Zagarino over and over for having Dave and I put together those stories from 89 because those are precious and priceless because Mm. it's, it's about two, it's not about one.
0: No, for sure. And and that really, you'd won a lot before going into 89, like we've gone over. I mean, there was even that, was it 21 races straight <laughs> that you won everything in between? And and we're not talking small races. This is ITU World Championships and in its inaugural year and Nice and Zoffengun, which was the big duathlon at the time. I mean, these were big, big races that you were just backing up and winning and winning and winning. But I still, it's like you were the guy that was winning everything you and you were nicknamed the grip you know and and you were like how do we beat this guy but oh dave's got him covered in kona and then boom you win kona and that was like the real launch that i feel like um that made you just you know go beyond what you'd ever yeah. been before and uh, i think that was truly remarkable did you ever think um you know the olympics were announced sort of triathlon would be the olympics i think in 93 94 95 somewhere there i think you were still racing did you ever think well maybe if i hang on i'll be i think rob burrell was 42 or something mm-hmm. or 40 or 42 and he raced uh in sydney olympics um as the oldest guy did you ever you know think you know hang it because i think you retired in 97 is that right
1: i retired in uh the last year that i raced was 1996 i did uh they had that a series of short races that were you
0: know, that's right yeah. the itgp yeah. you, i remember you raced uh simon lessing and you almost got him and he was a guy that was unbeatable i was like yeah it was a real shame i it's one of the regrets i never i never got to actually physically race you i um i've raced you in my mind so that's why i say physically <laughs> I, you and i my visualizing i've had you you know up the road or behind me many many times but physically we never raced yeah. um but the scoreboard on the visualizing I'm, i've actually beaten you i'm 100 percent right yeah. now so um <laughs> that's important you know I, no but it was i really missed not getting the chance to race you guys and i was focused on the world cup at the time in 96 and 97 um and they had that international triathlon grand prix and you were racing a lot of the guys and and then you know you stopped racing and and we look back now you know you you stopped racing at well what in 90 you would have been what 36 i was 38 I think, uh, last year 38 mm-hmm. yeah i mean that's you know uh, a lot of the guys now are going i mean Craig Alexander's forty six and still mm. racing. I retired at forty four, and there seems to be more guys going even into their forties. You know more so. I Don't you know? Jan Ferdino's, you know approaching forty and still pushing. Did you ever feel like? Do you look back now and go, were, were you completely done? You had your turn, or do you kind of feel like, oh, the Olympics would have been great, and you know, no, I could I, have got a few more years. You know, I had I had one
1: sort of overarching goal when I competed, and that was to retire uninjured healthy and not burned out and you know i mean cuz the reality, yeah, yeah
0: that's good yeah, yeah. well
1: you know I, I looked at at runners and cyclists and and some triathletes you know training in boulder you know it's like a world class cauldron and i'd seen a lot of the a lot of the guys and the gals just go a couple of years too many, and all of a sudden, it, it goes from this incredibly beautiful experience in sports to something that's really frustrating, and often mm. leaving them in, in a physical condition where they just can't even really enjoy just get going out there and and training and being mm-hmm. healthy and fit. And it's like I'm I'm in my 30s, you know. Hopefully, I have another 40, 50, 60 years, and hopefully, I can just keep enjoying the the lifestyle of, of, of exercise. And so, um, I, I felt like I could have squeezed a couple more years out of the lemon, you know, and probably had some decent results and, but I might've paid a price that would have, Mm. that would have haunted me the rest of my life. And it's like, I'm not willing to do that. And so what, was there ever a regret like, gee, I wish I had gone to the Olympics. I mean, certainly that would have been one of the coolest things to do. However, there was never a day where I felt like, oh, I retired too early. And, and mm. for me, you know, it was great because I was in Sydney. It's the only Olympics I've ever been to. And I was I was working with NBC, so I was on the other side of the camera. And so, you know, I was, I was there when Simon Whitfield came across that line. And, and I will never forget the emotion of that moment. You know, it was mm. not only seeing triathlon in the Olympics, but just the way he won that race and the emotion that he had when he came across the line it's you know that's that was just one of the coolest things that i've ever seen in sport you know
0: yeah for me that was i often talk about that as being one of my career highlights and, it, and it's a career highlight which is a very weird way of putting it because i actually wasn't on the race and uh you know i was number two in the world got left off the australian team and and had a big court case in australia it was a it was a bit of an awful period in my career but mm-hmm the best things came from it. And that was, you know, meeting Laura in Canada after Simon said, come and help me train for the Olympics. And I was like, okay, I'm not doing anything else. I might as well. Went to Canada, met Laura, got the girl. And that's the way I kind of put it, you know, rather than going to the Olympics, I got the girl. Mm. And then, you know, training with Simon every single day. And I was pretty fit and strong by this stage in 2000. And, and he did a very good job recruiting, you know, myself and uh, a couple of other people that were strong athletes for him to train with. And, and the Australians flew me down as a reserve for the team, and um, it was it was a bittersweet moment to some degree because I was kind of obviously wanting to be on the course. It was my hometown; I'd won on the, the, the won the race the year before, and but then to watch Simon run down Macquarie Street, sprint to the win, and here I was in the stands as a reserve for the Australians with a tiny Canadian flag because mm. you know for me it was always mateship first, country second. You know, and, and he was a really close mate of mine, and. Um, and then he wins the race and he, he gets his gold medal and he's standing on the dais and they, they march him down off the dais and he comes past the stadium and he runs out of the little line that they were parading in and uh, runs over to me and puts the gold medal around my neck and said, you know, this is yours. Uh, and that was wow. when I, I – I can t- say that story a thousand times over and it still gives me goosebumps and almost brings me to tears because it was a really impactful moment in my – journey like you said and one of the lessons in terms of giving rather than just receiving and it was a really important state it it was it was what i needed to overcome the grief of not making the olympics but uh boy you know that opening you know the women were on the opening day the men were the next day at sydney olympics and and to see our sport show showcase to the world was truly amazing um yeah it was do you ever get tired of rehashing these stories i mean obviously like you said, 30 years later, we're talking about 89 Ironman and we're, we're you know, the 98, 1989 the story.com has come out and there's more stories. And, like, when I spoke to Simon Whitfield, he's like, you know, I'm just, to everybody else, I'm just the, you know, an Olympic gold medalist. And he's like, I'm more than that kind of thing. And he, he kind of felt like, you know, he's talked about it so much now that he's like, oh, do you ever have these kind of feelings or do you you know, do you escape enough that you kind of don't mind coming back to it every now and then? (laughs) Well, a funny
1: story about 10 years ago, um, I was talking with my mom and she goes, are you going to be telling those stories when you're saying 60? (laughs) And you know, I'll be 62 in in less than a month. (laughs) There you are. (laughs) Here I am. I'm still telling them. But the thing is, (laughs) is that, like I said, I, I keep, I keep reflecting back on them and, and there's little nuggets and things that, that I, that I still am learning from those races that I had. And, and uh, also it it's taken years, even though I've had a sense of what was going on, I couldn't find the words to express it. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, so even though I'm talking about the same races, I'm not racing anymore. I'm talking about the things I did 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's always a little different every time I, every time I tell it. So it's, it's still fresh for me, which is sort of ironic. And, and I don't, I don't, hang my head on my past laurels, you know, I feel like, you know, it's important for me to, to do the coaching to, you know, Brant and I teach workshops together called Fit Soul Fit Body, where we integrate those themes and we help other people hopefully find that, that balance and that, that life space. that's good for them. I, I do corporate speaking. I, you know, I do all these things and it just feels really, it's always fresh for me. You know, I've, I've never gotten bored with it. And if I, if I told the same stories with the same energy, with the same words, I'd be bored, but it's always, it's still evolving for me. And so, so it's amazing to me, you know? And so, yeah, mom, I am still telling. (laughs) I hope you like them still.
0: (laughs) Well, the fact is, the fact is we all just still love to hear them. Mm. So you're going to be, you know, like I said to you at the top of the show, this is a highlight for me. This is a, this is, you know, I'm talking to Mark Allen. This is you're your somebody that impacted my life, you know, in those teenage years tremendously. And and it's not just me. It's a whole bunch of us that that kind of wanted to be like Mark Allen. And I'll never forget when I was about, God, I must have been about 16, 17. It must have been about 87, 88, and um, you were winning everything. And I was on a crappy little bike, and uh, and I was keeping, you know, I didn't have any handlebar tape, and I was using electrical tape. and <laughs> I was like, you know what, I should just write a letter to Mark Allen to see if he has any, you know, leftover gear he doesn't want. You know, like I was like, I just wanted anything that you were using and then I could turn up with my mates, you know, that we were all training together down in Sydney. there down in Balmoral Triathlon Club and I could go, look what I got. I never sent the letter, but it, trust me, I thought about it many times. Oh, just great. Just to feel like I had that relationship, you know. Yeah. And uh, it's funny when you look back what you went through and – so right now you're up to you know Mark Allen coaching. Yep. Um, that's that's huge. You, you've got that's all around the world, right? You've, uh, you're training people from beginners all the way through to professionals. Um, how's how's that all working out for you? Yeah,
1: the coaching's great. I'm, we moved my my coaching to a new platform on Final Surge. Uh, it's a it's, it's kind of like the the next generation version of of Training Peaks. It's it's a it's a super great. Uh, platform for me to deliver my training plans to athletes to inter- interact with them on a daily basis and mm-hmm. uh to really track what they're doing in, the, in their workouts and i so it's it's funny because i was actually almost ready to give up coaching because i felt like i wasn't able to effectively interact with the athletes enough to really coach them and mm. uh, fortunately uh we've moved com over the, the delivery of the calendar and everything into final surge. And now I am actually really coaching people and it feels so great because I, you know, I develop relationships with the athletes. They get to know my, my style. I get to understand some of the things that they're going through. And, uh, you know, it's like, that's what a great coaching relationship is, is when you, when it's not just somebody that's just telling you swim this much, bike this much, run this much. It's like th- the athlete feels that you're invested in, in, in their effort, in, in, in their success. And you're there to help them out in what Yeah, way. you're a
0: part of their team. You're yeah. a part of their team. Yeah. And you want the best for them. Yeah, I part, get you're that. Part of their yeah. Team.
1: And so the coaching mm. for me in the last, and this is actually something that Scott's really helped me out with. He's, he's my business partner and, He's, you know, he about four years ago, he said, "Look, I've known you forever. I think you need some help with your coaching." And I said, "Yeah, I do." And it was hard to admit, but I said, "I do. I, it's not going where mm-hmm. I need it to." And so he said, "The first thing we need to do is to actually um, get it in people's minds that you still exist." He said, "I googled, I googled you, and first guy to come up is a snooker player, not you." <laughs> <laughs> and it's like. You know, I was buried way down in page ten on the Google search, you know. <laughs> and so he's just slowly helped craft stories and, and we put out content and, and told different things to show people like, yeah, I'm I'm still here, I'm still current, and then slowly have transitioned that into doing more coaching content that it's like, yeah, this guy actually coaches and he's excited about it and he's interested in it and So it's, it's really, you know, you, you, I had my team when I was, was racing, you know, the people who really helped Mm -hmm. me out and I I was missing that team element in my coaching. And now with Scott, I've really got that. And so it's, it's just fun. You know, we, we don't exist in the world in an isolated bubble. It might feel Mm -hmm. like we are isolated sometimes, but when you, when you have business partners and, and, who become your friends they're like family you know and, and you're you really can sync together and it's like you, you don't have to even almost tell each other what you're thinking because half the time you're finishing each other's sentences you know it's like you can create <coughs> some pretty cool things together so you know
0: that's awesome yeah and and, and so, you guys. Uh, if people go go to you, you know, you help them with not just the training programs. Do you work with their sleep and recovery, nutrition, general health, all of those, and obviously mental strategies? That seems to be, you know, you know, something that you've really worked on. Is that they get that all from you?
1: Yeah, everything. You know, and yeah, and I'm yeah. an open book. People, okay. People ask me questions on absolutely everything, and I, I, Good. I, I always answer them and, and uh, try to. You know, when you're answering an athlete's questions, especially when it's not specifically about training, it's like you have to kind of tune in and sort of almost feel the athlete themselves because it's it's a person that you're dealing with. It's not a it's not a, a number on a spreadsheet or a name you see on your computer screen. It's a person that maybe mm-hmm. they struggled in a, in a, in a race because of something, and so it's like what were they really struggling with and you have to kind of tune in and and, and i love that process you know because we you know mm. we kind of go back and forth and eventually you know you sift away peel back a few of the layers and and all of a sudden it's like wow you know this this person isn't struggling with a sport they're struggling with something else in their life and mm. let's see if we can help get that in, in line and then the the athletics will take care of itself or whatever it is you know
0: and, and well there's a lot of that in the sport isn't there a lot of people are drawn to the the drama of the sport to some degree and they 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 come to it because of whatever's happened in their life and trying to get to understand their why the why they want to do what you're going to give them is really important Mm. um do you have any like a gear recommendations or you know when we're talking swim bike run recovery nutrition is there any kind of things that come off the top of your head where you're like you guys should invest in this or this is how you should be approaching things
1: yeah you know i've 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 worked a number of years with Roca. All their products are great. You know, their wetsuits or sunglasses. Uh I've worked a number of years with Ventum. Their their bikes are amazing. And everybody who's gotten one is just like, oh man, this is awesome. I got I got on one, you know, they sent me one and I'm like, Oh yeah, okay, I'll try it out. And mm-hmm. it's like whoa rocket ship you know
0: yeah for people that don't know a ventum is an unusual looking frame um it it doesn't have a down tube it it, and it but it's it's got all the fueling inside the frame and everything else right
1: yeah and i've i've worked with uh for a few years with a swedish running shoe company salming s-a-l-m-i-n-g they they have great products and then uh i've i've been testing out a number of nutritional products of a lot, of, a lot of people were using UCAN in uh, Kona this year. And so I've been trying some of that in the off-season. I've also tested out Morton products, which um, has been made famous now by the sub two hour marathon. Uh, that's what he was using in the race. And,
0: and I think Jan Fadino might have used, does he use Morton as I, well? And Javier Gomez? Yeah, or? I think, I
1: think, I think he, yeah, he, he, I, he I'm, about ninety nine point nine percent sure that's what he uses yeah yeah so yeah, yeah it's you know the, the, <laughs> the equipment stuff is and the nutrition and all that it's everything is always evolving, and so it's mm-hmm. I, I don't know if I'd say I enjoy having to keep up on all that stuff, but I definitely have to keep up on all that stuff um, mm. but ultimately you know it's it's you as a person, it's how you train, it's how you recover. It's your mindset when you go into the race, it's what you're trying to get out of it that ultimately enables you to either have a great experience or kind of a rough experience in sport. And so, hopefully, mm-hmm. hopefully, you know, people like listening to this podcast, it'll help them to come up with some things that may be like, wow, you know, I, I mean, I wasn't really, I never thought about that d- before. And I actually really mm-hmm. love this sport because of, you know, something that they hadn't thought of or, you know, mm-hmm. so,
0: Yeah. Mate, it's been a real treat what, what's uh 2020 have installed for you
1: more of the same you know more coaching yeah. more speaking more uh yeah. working with 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 companies working doing a bunch of stuff with zwift now i do a, a weekly ride with zwift uh every tuesday oh, cool. night at six uh we'll, we'll miss the last couple of weeks of the year but it'll be uh every tuesday night it's a one one hour workout uh i, I usually i'm going to start out mostly with kind of medium pace stuff the first part of the year and then transition into speed work just like you would in any kind of uh, training plan. So that's really fun because it's gotten me excited about riding my bike again, to be honest.
0: <laughs> that's awesome. I, no. So what, 6, 6 p.m. East Coast or, uh, or Pacific? Pacific. So Okay, 6 p.m. Pacific. So if you're on the East Coast, it's 9, 9 p.m. 9 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> that's all right. All the finance people in, in New York are just getting home. Right. So and, that if, works and, if,
1: and if you're in Asia, it's actually in the morning. So it's good for, for that too. So.
0: That, that's true, and and then how how can people follow you at the moment? Like you said, you've got a better web presence and social media than you have had for years. So what do you yeah, what do you handle? We post
1: everything uh, on the Mark Allen Coaching Facebook page. Uh, you can join the Mark Allen Coaching Zwift group. Uh, po- we always post some special stuff in there, and then definitely Instagram Mark Allen Grip. Uh, I'm, <laughs> we, we do a lot of stuff on Instagram, and I'm actually posting. Uh, Twice a week through the end of the year, some off season uh tips on both Facebook and Instagram, just little snippets like one minute snippets of different things you can do in the off season to to sort of have a uh, set yourself up for a great twenty twenty and that's that 's kind of what we're doing right now is trying to get everybody ready to set themselves up for another amazing year twenty twenty <laughs> almost <laughs> around the corner.
0: Here we are. Mate, this has been like I've said throughout. You can probably tell by my tone the whole way through. It's been an absolute treat, and um, to get to spend you know well well over an hour with you is um, I just really appreciate it. And I I hope everybody listening has enjoyed you know listening to. What is it? The fittest man, the fittest endurance man on earth or something, (laughs) ESPN called you. The greatest endurance athlete of all time. There you go. Mr. Mark Allen, mate. Thanks so much. Um, Stay on the line and uh, thanks, everyone, for joining us. Thank you, Greg.
2: Thanks a lot for listening to Be With Champions. If you enjoyed the show, your support would truly be appreciated. You can visit the Be With Champions Patreon page or you can subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Don't miss the next episode, so subscribe and be notified. For show notes, if you want to know more, please visit bennettendurance.com. I'm Phil Liggett, and on behalf of Greg Bennett, here's to the next time, and I hope you will join Greg again very soon.